0: Welcome back, everyone, to the Radiant Others Klezmer Music Podcast. My name is Dan Blacksburg, and I'm happy to be back after a short break to share a second series of episodes featuring interviews with folks who make up the Klezmer world. Back in August, I got to conduct interviews live at Klez Canada. Klez Canada is a program that takes place in the late summer uh, about an hour north of Montreal, with a bunch of the great faculty there, which featured some of the best klezmer musicians and scholars really around. And I'm really excited to be able to share these interviews that I did there with you. The first one I'm sharing features two great Yiddish singers, Shura Lapovsky, whose voice you heard at the top of the episode, and Josh Wilecki, who you'll hear from a little bit later on. I introduced them more thoroughly in the main body of the episode, so I'm going to leave longer introductions for that. Suffice it to say these two are really deep singers and really deep people. Since this episode is the beginning of the second mini season for the podcast, I actually wanted to acknowledge and give shout outs to a couple of the podcasts that have been big inspirations for me and uh, have helped me formulate my thoughts about why I'm doing this and who my audience is and sort of how to present all these people to you all. First and foremost, I want to shout out to the 5049 podcast run by Jeremiah Zimmerman. Jeremiah is a composer and clarinetist in New York, and he's been doing this podcast for a number of years, which features uh, you know one-on-one interviews with artists mostly working in avant-garde music or avant-garde jazz or New York creative experimental art. And uh, he's done about 130 of these episodes, and they're all phenomenal. I've learned a lot about the music from that, and I've also learned a lot about I guess what I think people are interested in when they listen to musicians talk to each other and kind of what's interesting about that. And really, the format of that podcast is the basis for the format of this one. And so I'm deeply indebted to Jeremiah for all of his work, and I'm really happy to know him and to uh, be able to listen to all that stuff. The second one is a newer podcast to me by these two guys from Montreal, Trafe. The Trafe podcast is a left-leaning Jewish podcast covering news and culture and media and a lot of different things. And uh, these two guys do a great job with it. And I'm actually featured on a recent episode talking about this podcast and sort of my uh, interesting year in terms of Klezmer and politics and all sorts of stuff. So please check that out, the Trafe podcast. And lastly, I'd like to give a shout out to uh, W Kamau Bell and Hari Kondabolu's podcast, Politically Reactive. Uh, they do an interview podcast. Uh, it's but they do a lot of really interesting things with structure. And while I definitely don't have the uh, editing skills or the team to really do as much as they do. Just thinking about how they break things up has been a really big inspiration for me and really helped me think this stuff through about how I want to structure these podcasts. So please check all those out. And obviously, there's lots more out there to check out. Check out old episodes of the podcast. we have got the other three that I've put up uh, with Michael Winograd, Pete Reshevsky, Zev Feldman. You can check all those out. Uh, please rate and review it on iTunes and either post about it on social media, Facebook, Twitter, what have you, and just tell a friend about it. Uh, anything we can do to spread this around, I think that would be really helpful and I would really appreciate it. I also want to let you know that I've released my first Klezmer Trombone CD, which may be the first Klezmer Trombone CD. It's also called Radiant Others, and I sincerely hope that you would go visit the uh, either my website, danblacksburg.com or danblacksburgbandcampcom slash albums slash Radiant Others, where you can stream the whole album and pick up a copy. So definitely check that out. Uh, if you want to find out more about the people I'm interviewing today, you can find out more about Shora at shoralapofsky.com and josh at woletskycom slash josh. Uh, yeah, that's about it for me. I hope that you've all had a wonderful run of Jewish holidays. And let's hear from first Shura and then Josh. All right, thank you everybody. Thank you so much. Welcome to Radiant Others Live at Klez Canada 2017, day two, woo! Thank you. My name is Dan Blacksburg, and I'm excited to present these interviews to you all here at Klez Canada, and to everyone who's tuning in from around the world. Today we get to hear from two amazing Yiddish singers, Shura Lepofsky and Josh Boletsky. We're gonna split up our time today hearing from Shura first and Josh second. First up, Shura Lapovsky. Shura Lapovsky lives in Amsterdam and Paris and is a very important Yiddish singer here at Kles Canada and on the international stage. She has sung and taught at festivals in Europe, Russia, the United States, and Canada. Shura is a Yiddish singer and songwriter of new Yiddish repertoire, a storyteller, and teacher of Jewish meditation classes, the meditative voice. Please give a big Kles Canada welcome to Shura. Thanks so much for doing this.
1: Thank you, Dan. Um, in fact, it's a special day today. It's very, for me, it's a very, as I said yesterday in the concert, how special it's for me to be in this community that's growing and growing and growing with wonderful artists sharing their knowledge with each other and then people supporting and bringing their backgrounds. So it's, it's such a wonderful, wonderful, important place. And today, I have to say for a moment, it's the yart side of my father, Monophasolim. Eleven years ago, he died, and he was very. He he was born in Ukraine in Kharkov. And in 1917. And so they had to escape very soon, uh, which he called Russia, and uh, after a long, he came finally to France, and in France he was an amaki. In the Jewish resistance, and saved many children to Switzerland. And then he came to Holland and married my mother. He did not grow up speaking Yiddish so i haven't I hadn't heard Yiddish in my youth at all. And um, then eleven years ago, just before he I think a week or so before he died, he, he was not a poetic person. he was not someone who was very He he was more a matter of fact person. He was emotional but he was never poetic. Then a week before he died, he suddenly said to me, Shura, I'm so happy that you have lived the prayer of the Yiddish language. So then I went to Vilnius because I had a commitment to do a concert. And the concert was on the twenty third of august two thousand six, in a Yiddish former Yiddish theatre that was by then a Centre for Peace or something, and this former Yiddish centre or theatre was opened in nineteen seventeen, in the year my father was born, by someone who was called Nachum Lipowski. The moment I get on stage in that Yiddish theatre opened by someone named after him, my father dies, I hear it later. So as if the circle was round. But I sing the prayer of Yiddish and my father dies at that moment, and so of course I had to go back immediately the next day. And in a sense, both my parents were enchanted with the fact that I was so deeply connected with Yiddish because no one in Holland spoke Yiddish. There was no one I knew that spoke it. I was—I I thought it was like Latin; it wasn't not a, a spoken language anymore. And from the moment I was fourteen, I found the first book. I, the first song I sang was "Tu and uh, I loved it because it's a philosophical song, and I very much am a philosopher. So, um... and then, and my mother was my mother loved Yiddish songs. So she had gone to Paris in the 50s, where the revival did not yet exist as such. But there was, there was, uh, for example, the singer Sarah Gorbi.
2: Mm-hmm
1: who was a wonderful singer from Moldavia, but she, was, she lived in Paris by the time, and she recorded, and she was a gorgeous singer. So My mother took those big LPs home to Holland, and I would grow up with those songs. And I would grow up with books from Hannah Milner, the one the person who published books in uh, with Yiddish songs in Holland. And that was my Yiddish, that was it. I mean, I didn't have any exposure to any and and in a sense I didn't know what my profession would be because the only thing I knew was a deep love for yiddish yiddish songs in this case but I did not think that that could be a profession mm-hmm. because it wasn't taken serious the first concerts I gave in uh in the liberal synagogue in Holland, after three songs in Yiddish, people would get a little noisy and raise their hands and would say, could you please sing in Hebrew? That's our language. Wow.
0: To do that in the middle of a concert? Yeah.
1: <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs>
0: and
1: um, yeah, so I, so I didn't know why this passion, what, what is it, for whom, for what? And then I was introduced to someone who heard me sing and she brought me to Paris. By that time I was 22. And then was the first time I sang a little concert for in that gathering was Yitzchak Niburski, the the great teacher, of the the main teacher and professor of Yiddish culture, literature, language in Paris, in the Maison La Culture Yiddish. And he was in the crowd, Jacques Grobert was in the crowd, he was a wonderful singer. Uh, Bernard Weisbrod, so many people. And then, when I did not translate one song, I heard that people understood what I was singing. Mm. So, then I went up to the to Yitzchok Niburski, and I heard him speak Yiddish to someone. For me, it was really like something like... It, Hey,
2: this is a spoken language? <laughs>
1: yeah. What? And then I quickly put a phrase together from a song. And from then on, I knew I have to learn the language and, uh, and the rest is history. But, did, uh, you,
0: did you find that, learn, it sounds like you came to Yiddish very naturally and very young, or Yiddish song. Yeah. And, and, and then it sounds like you just talked about sort of your big break moment, right? Where you yes. realized this might be a possible career. Did did it did singing as a career in general was that something that kind of happened at the same time or was all of this something that you kind of just fell into and said, wow maybe this actually could have happened?
1: I fell into everything always in my life. It's okay, <laughs> yeah. I didn't. The only thing was that I knew I had a passion for Yiddish, which I did not understand. I did never ever think of a career. Mm-hmm. Never. I didn't. I wasn't interested in that word, in that concept. Um, so, I even went to conservatory because I wanted to dance, because I, I, I thought dance is a good way. I, I felt like I'm a healer, and through movement, maybe I wanted, so I, I wanted to do maybe rhythmic... Um, so I went to the Rotterdam Conservatory because I knew there was a good education for that kind of dance, to be a healer, dancer. And then I saw the name of a vocal person Honig on the door who I had heard of and knew she was good so then I, I didn't like the dance education so it was not my my thing so I opened the door and she was teaching it was an open day and I am sitting I come in and the moment I come in that room I hear her say this you have to stream with the tone the tone has to flow and I decided I would study singing.
0: <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that sounds right.
1: Uh, but the only thing I knew was I want to become a, I want to be a Yiddish singer. So I already felt some kind of conflict in my heart because I did not want to end up with <laughs> I, I didn't. Yeah. So I was on the one hand scared that I would lose Something. I was afraid that I wouldn't be able to have a folky uh, approach. Mm-hmm. But as a teacher, she was, she's a tzaddik. She was such a, she is still alive, thank goodness, and then we are still friends. And she's, she's the vocal coach of, I mean, Dietrich Fischer sent her, his students to her. I mean, worldwide, she's one of the greatest uh, vocal coaches. She's teaching all over the world. And I left after one year.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And we, I wept, we both wept. We said goodbye, because I said, I'm betraying my soul.
0: Being in school. Like Being
1: that. in a conservatory where I'm going to only be taught bel canto. And... Uh, I can't. My whole soul yearns for for rebuilding a world that's vanished. Mm. And still, I didn't know that it's a profession. Right. And then, only years, years later, I was asked to participate in a project of the second generation. In Holland, and then I met Mira Rafałowicz, and Mira Rafalovic was the one and only person in Holland that really spoke Yiddish in a metalietschne tamm, ganeten, tamm ganeten. So she put together a program, and after that concert, I said to her. She was 20 years older than I am, and, and a hippie, and she was a dramaturg and into theater, and and she had translated many books into English or Dutch from Yiddish. And I said, "Oh, you have to teach me. You have to teach me Yiddish." Nice. And she said, I don't do that. And then I said, well, you have to. <laughs> and, she, and she says, I was this pizzelekin, I think 24 years old, and she, I was so strong in my you have to, that she, she, she said, okay, okay. <laughs> 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 and she started you know, taking Weinreich's uh, beginning of book and making copies and started to teach me. And to explain to you how much in Holland... There was no Yiddish.
0: Yeah, please.
1: Uh, one day, Avram Sutzkever came to Holland because we, in Rotterdam, we have, uh, we have I think still, a very beautiful uh, once a year um, festival, which is called Poetry International. Mm-hmm. So for that Poetry International, Avram Sutzkever, the most famous Yiddish writer and poet ever, came to Holland and Judith Herzberg, who is a very great poet in Holland as well, Jewish poet and writer, was looking for someone who could translate his work for that festival. Mm. So she heard Mira Rafalovic's name, calls Mira Rafalovic and says, Mira Rafalovic, this is Judith Herzberg, Judith Herzberg, very famous person, so Mira dropped off the, off her chair from, <gasps> Judith Herzberg, and she says, you have to come to, uh, can you, are you able to come next week and translate poetry of Aram Sutzkever?" And she said, no, I can't, I have a commitment. And then Yiddish Hesper said to her, "You don't have a choice. You're the only one." Oh. So she came. Yeah. And they became friends. But there was, there were a few people here and there. I found out later. But because of the fact that Jews who came to Holland very soon could assimilate, the the the, the, the Dutch attitude towards Jews was rather good if you compare it with every other country on the, in the world. So Jews could build synagogues, uh, big uh, Ashkenazic synagogues, Sephardic synagogues. So soon, you know, the Jew- Yiddish language would disappear. Uh, I,
0: I think that's, that's really amazing, and I love to hear how much your self-determination just really made things happen. One thing that I thought was really interesting that you said is, A, that you left conservatory for after a year, but B... That you're, I think of you as someone who has uh, uh, is able to imbue a classically trained style voice with a, with a folk energy and a folk style. So, and and you, here you are teaching the vocal warm up class, and I'm sure that you're very interested in embodiment and how the voice works. The thing and I was thinking about uh, what what's your relationship now between sort of classical technique and folk style and how do you sort of mix that up and what are the kind of discoveries that you feel you've made that are useful to people?
1: It's a very important subject since, of course, I've been wrestling with it for years. Yeah. And, and I, I once gave a lecture in Paris a la recherche de la voix authentique, looking for the authentic voice because I've come to understand that you can actually have a classic education by now. And, um, and when you are very good, you can actually um, use classical technique and make it that surface of different styles. Because I think authentic singing, if you're bothered by a lack of technique, it will be in the way of your authenticity. Mm-hmm. Because you'll be afraid or people the audience will hear that you're forcing your voice, which of course is not making it sound like natural. Right. And if you are, because there are big classical singers who can make, who can sing, Frère Jacques, Frère If I always think if you can still sing in, like, simple folk songs or sing in a simple way, then you're good.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. To
1: me. <laughs> and, and, um, because then you're not bothered by your technique, but you're helped by your technique. And of course, um, uh, if I would sing um, that's a different style than when I sing my own songs that I wrote now. Sure. Where it's more a ballad style. Mm-hmm. I, I think when I sing That's more ballad, ballad style.
0: But that's and that's that's to a your provenance, and it's a good thing that you're bringing all these new sounds in. Uh, One thing that I've noticed about myself as a trombone player is that uh, I sometimes the we call them extended techniques when you do things that are not traditional. A krechts would be kind of an odd maybe example of that because it's from folk music and we don't usually associate that term with folk music but for me it's all the same and I found that there are way if you have a perspective that is I guess embodied and about sort of going after just whatever technique is just whatever you need to get where you're going a lot of these sounds can help you get going like working on something in, in a Yiddish style might open up ideas about singing classical music or other kinds of things and i was wondering like if you found that should be true as well
1: absolutely it's interesting because i think through my own because i've been teaching myself a lot just recording myself and then listening back and thinking oh i thought it sounds great but it sounds not at all great so just and in a sense i think i developed more of a strong myth mid- Mid voice quality uh-huh. that usually in classic like classical singers have less. It's more more like this, and it's I am here oh, yeah, 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 or, or not or even not with the Krechts. When I go back to Margret Honig, sometimes now I do. Uh-huh. She says it's so interesting how you have maybe your your chest uh, voice is much more developed than usually with classical singers. Oh, that's sense. so cool. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah, I've been learning about more of this because my wife is singing in a in a all women's choir in Philadelphia, and she's been. I've been learning about the technique of the voice, but as a brass player, uh, someone said it's as if these are your vocal cords, and then everything else is exactly the same. And so I'm I'm thinking a lot about that these days. Uh, I want to talk about you mentioned writing your own songs and how yes. you're. It's different. So when did you start writing your own songs, or were you writing your own songs in uh, Doctor English before you started writing in Yiddish, for example, or is this where you found your voice?
1: Yes, I I have never ever uh, written any song before, mm-hmm. and even that strong that Chana uh, Melotek, who 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 published all the wonderful Yiddish books once said to me, Shura, don't you think it's time that you write your own songs? And by that time, it was I think it was two thousand four or five, maybe. I said, not at all, I will never write my own songs. Mm. I was very sure because there are so many wonderful Yiddish songs that I have not yet sung. I don't think it's necessary I would sing, I would create one other song. Honestly speaking, when Adrian Cooper died and I was in such shock that I, for a while, didn't want to sing. And then I was asked here in class Canada to do the first concert in her honor. Yeah, I remember. And one thing I could not see for myself is that I would sing the songs that she sang. Because one thing that made me absolutely horrified is the concept that someone is, you can just replace someone. That, that's totally against my, my ethics. So one day I was in Paris and I gave myself, because I was exhausted and I just wanted to have two days off where nothing else would interfere with my life. And suddenly, I started writing a song. Weiter weg von deiner Stennen, ob ich dein Hand, dich which is a commentary on Unter deine weiße Stärken, streck zu mir deine weiße Hand. A Sutsky song about looking for God in terrible times and he can't find God. So it just fell in my lap. And I I wrote a melody for Levick's song and the und du bist noch. But after that, and then Tamara Brooks died, like uh, uh, in the nineteenth of May in 2012, mm-hmm. and I again fell in such deep sorrow and pain, and in a sense it was my way out of my pain. So I started writing. And, and from that time on it didn't stop. Oh, good. And it's it's strange because I think I have eighteen songs or seventeen original songs. And um, but yeah, I've never written anything in Dutch or or it's only Yiddish that comes out. Whereas it's not my original native language, but in a sense, it's become my language of my deepest soul.
0: Yeah, I think you're not alone in feeling that way about the language or the music in general. I know that uh, for me. I, I call it sort of the DNA model where you sort of discover you might have had this in your DNA already. And you're like, well, I wasn't exposed to it before, but now that I am, this is definitely a part of me and is always gonna be a part of me, right?
1: And you know what, it's true. And in a sense, I have to say, being on this side of the ocean, I feel so surrounded by people where, where there is an echo on the level of heart and soul that I don't have that much in Europe. Mm. Because European Judaism is so focused on Israel a lot of time and so focused on, yeah, the, the whole Ashkenazic world and Yiddish. If you say that, oh, yes, I know Fiddler on the Rules, then that's it. And it's, it's, it's and Yiddish, oh, Yiddish, there's never money for Yiddish, there's never, if there's a Yiddish concert, okay, a few people show up. If you haven't really made sure that people know you by the time. And if there's a Khazanut concert, everybody shows up and there's money and everything. And it's, and, or big Israeli stars. And everything has its place. But the fact that Ashkenazic material doesn't happen, that Yiddish is considered something still. still ah, yeah, right. yeah, 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 yeah. So for me, it's interesting how, how I feel that what you're saying, that it's part of your DNA, of an old knowledge, maybe, you know, why, how, how, you know, the Hasidims think we have been here not for the first time, so whatever it might be, that, that something you resonates from the old world. And for me, it, it gives me a right to exist in a very deep way when I'm here.
2: Mm.
1: And in, in Europe, I feel it's very important to do this work it's a different mission, in some sense. Yes. In Europe, it's the mission to say, wait a minute, Judaism is rich, and it's not only politics, and it's not only you know, the rules of, of, of orthodox Judaism, it's much more, and tell about Buddhism, and tell about m- mysticism in a, in a rich way, whereas you can be. And so this whole beauty of music and wisdom it it needs to be presented in Europe for another reason.
0: I totally agree (laughs) with that. And, uh, you know, I'm in the flip side of that. You know, as I live in the States, surrounded by Jews, I can be around as many Jews as I want, basically. Um, I live in a very Jew-heavy neighborhood and a very diverse neighborhood. Um, And then I've traveled to Europe and performed and felt different. Uh, I think it's different maybe for someone of my generation, uh, especially going, the first time I went there was to go to Poland when I was 22. Very lucky, very fortunate. and But I didn't feel that sense of uh, alienation. I think I was just too young and maybe a little bit more separated. Also, my fa- family's history does not have a lot. Our European connection is over 100 years old, so there we didn't have a lot of connection to anything during the 20th century particularly. It was all America. But um, one thing that's just been really interesting in my life, and I hope that you're able to experience this is that there's a new, seems like there's a new um, wave of young people who are interested in leading Jewish lives that both are religious but also uh, uh, cultural. And some of the information, you know, I don't know if you know Joey Weisenberg who's been here a couple times. Um, well, he's been writing a lot of Nagunim and they've been making their way into, and he, he came to class Canada as a scholarship student maybe four or five times and so there's, there's, there's maybe, there's a lot of things happening and, and uh, I hope that you're able to bring your, because they'll be waiting for you in a way. They're, they don't know they need what you have to offer yet. So do you feel that you, when you're here, you're kind of like gathering energy to take back home or something like that a little bit?
1: Absolutely, I gather. I mean, what I love about this, about this week is that experts in all Ashkenazic field and real experts join together and we sit in each other's classes. And just so normally you give and give and give and here you receive and receive and you give, you get feedback, real feedback, mm-hmm. feedback in a literal, sin, a literal sense. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's very enriching. And then what you're just saying about young people now finding their w- new ways in, 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 you know, what you just said, being creative and in a new way, religious. Well, in Europe, It's all Judaism is like a wounded bird,
2: mm.
1: with and I always say have, have, we need to have patience. It was not long ago that a woman could not wear a talit in shul, for example, and that the female uh, rabbis now it's just starting. And everything is, oh no, but we can't hurt our, our ancestors who were killed because of being Jewish and we can't hurt any tradition because it will, you know, be the, be not respectful towards our ancestors. Amsterdam, I have to say, Amsterdam is traditionally a very Jewish place. Uh-huh. It has been a very Jewish place before the war. A lot of Jews, as I said, who didn't speak Yiddish, but the language in Amsterdam, has a lot of Hebrew words in it, Yiddish words in it, as in as a daily language of Amsterdam. Oh. So in that sense, there is, but it's not really Yiddish the way we speak Yiddish. But uh, for example, the word of Amsterdam, Amsterdamers call Amsterdam "mokum," mokum, uh-huh. uh-huh. the place. And ga when you say there's a lot of Yiddish and Hebrew in the daily language in Amsterdam. Um, there is now, and and the sense of Jewishness is still there. We had a tradition for a while, for a long time, in fact, that the mayor would be Jewish. Ah. Now, with political times changing, it's very difficult. Uh, I don't have to explain you. (laughs) (laughs) So um, it's difficult because um, on the one hand, Everything becomes political at this point. I think so. Yeah. And my political view is it's important to make culture the most important political instrument, as we all do, as as Josh does all the time, as we all do, which is reach out in a way that you don't oppress people all the time by just saying, well, this is the reason, and, and, uh, you know, we were there first, no, you were, they were there first, and, you know, like political fights but share the richness and go into dialogue with your culture. So, for now, I think it's even becoming some kind of medication to help that we won't destroy each other.
0: Yeah, I think there's something about, and I've had this experience many times, I mean, we have this experience here, I imagine that not everybody in this room would agree on certain issues, but we have this love of this music and this culture that allows us to have a human connection that's way way above that, and, that's, and that, that's the kind of foundation that you can have real dialogue on, right? Absolutely. And so we keep doing what we're doing, and I think, I know I'm trying to figure out how to get that, that build that foundation for wider groups of people who don't necessarily, because we're here, we don't, it's kind of a self-selecting audience, you know, everybody who comes here already kind of likes this stuff in a, li- a little bit, or they're curious or something like that. Cool, so we just have a couple more minutes, but I wanted to ask you sort of what you're up to musically, Today, like what's what's you've been writing a lot of songs and yes,
1: I suppose at a certain point I need to write them down with with notes and publish them. I think that's that the would next be great. Step. Yes, so that's sort of on my mind and um, musically and the meditative voice thing is for me has become something very important because I te- it's not I don't do vocal warm up in the morning. Uh-huh. I do more like a like a set of a, you know, if you can speak about it, like a wake up of, of some soul quality in the morning. Uh-huh. And um, so that, that gives you a... Uh, so this this week I have the theme, Olam, world and worlds. And then I work with letters. And we sing Nigunin to sort of uh, bring life in the body, but not through exercises for ha 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 not kind of, no, but more... Um, um, open your heart and sing the nigun from like open the open a window in your ark, which is a Genesis uh, verse from from yeah. the Bible, and then, and then what happens with the voice? In fact, it's interesting, because when I say open your heart and you hear then the nigun, it sounds very different. But I'm not talking about how it should sound at all. We're right. talking about, and so I I use Hasidic stories, Kabbalistic um, myst- concepts. Like a magid, in fact. For me, the magid role during the Baal Shem Tov time is very much something I started to incarnate. And once I was staying in Rab, in Rab Zalman Shachtuch Shalomi's house for a week, which mm-hmm. was wonderful. It was meant to be for one day, and I was there with Theodore Bickell and Tamara Brooks. We were going to do, be there for one day, but we were snowed in, it I'm was wonderful. Bad. It was Hanukkah time. We were snowed in, and it became a Hasidic retreat of a week.
2: Perfect. Really Perfect. good.
1: <laughs> and, um, and then one day I asked him, so what is, in your view, uh, Reb Zalman, what is the difference between a rebbe? because I was doubting whether I wanted to become a rabbi. What's the difference between a rebbe and a magid? A magid. And then he, he looked, he, he, he stroked his beard for a moment, looked at me and said, yeah, a maggid. I think a maggid in, in your case does not have to teach halakha, but speak about the immediate contact with mm-hmm. God. I love that because I am, a, I am part of the Buddhist tradition of socialism and righteous acts for everybody of, on this earth, and I love to have a straight connection.
0: That's perfect, and I think that's probably a great place to uh, wrap up and switch over. So, thank you so much, Sure. It's so wonderful to get to talk to you and thank get you. to know you. Thank you, and we'll more to come. Yeah. Next up, we've got another incredible Yiddish singer, Josh Woletsky. Josh Woletsky is one of the Yiddish leading songwriters in the world. He grew up immersed in the Yiddish musical world of his family and secular school/slash camp network that has been and has been teaching, performing, and writing Yiddish music ever since. Yiddish has also figured prominently in many of his documentary films, from Image Before My Eyes and Partisans of Vilna to PBS programs featuring Itzhak Perlman. Josh was a founding member of the early klezmer revival band, Capella. And he brings his new album of Yiddish songs, Passagieren. That's the H that messes me up. So he's got a new album. You should all check it out, Passagieren slash Passengers. And let's welcome Josh. <clears throat> My first question is, when did you first encounter the word klezmer and what did it mean to you at the time that you heard it?
3: Mm. I have to think back. I I think I first encountered it when I was um, helping out the Folksteiner, and they were doing a production of Stemping You, who was a klezmer violinist, a fiddle player. And I think that's the first time I heard, heard the word. So it was in, Shalom aleichem, world of, yeah,
0: and it meant a musician who played, yeah, yeah.
3: musician, and it also had the, the connotation of a slightly unsavory um, uh, Romeo of the shtetl.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. So you were working with the folks, being you know, when, when, how old were you when you were doing that? Yeah, get right up on the mic. I think that's useful.
3: Uh, how old I was? I was
0: about twenty. Mm-hmm. Like that. Um, and you always grew up in the New York area, is that right? Or where? Yeah. yeah,
3: I was born in Brooklyn mm-hmm. I live in Brooklyn yeah. for many many years my parents were both born in New York City um, yeah, so I'm a, I'm, I'm a New York kid
0: nice, uh, yeah, what, what's funny my family is, my parents are both from the New York area but we never went to Brooklyn. <laughs> I <had laughs> grandparents in Manhattan, and I had grandparents uh, in uh, uh, Tarrytown, or Elmsford, actually. Mm-hmm. But, um, so Yiddish was just always a part, it was just always around.
3: Yes, I, I grew up speaking English in the house as the first language of the house, but Yiddish was always uh, around both, Intentionally and unintentionally. Uh-huh. We, we spoke Yiddish once or twice a week at the dinner table uh, to encourage the uh, the, the language. <laughs> and both my parents, especially my father, spoke Yiddish with their parents who were uh, quite present in our lives. Um, and I went to Yiddish... Uh, schools after after school schools and on the weekends uh, so yiddish and and there was lots of singing lots yeah. of yiddish singing so for me singing in Yiddish uh, started as far back as I can remember and one of the, one of the wonderful um, Things that happens to you sometimes as you as you get into middle age and and start to uh, all of a sudden realize that wow here's a song that I heard a few times uh from my grandfather, and all of a sudden I remember a song with all the words and i'm astounded <laughs> <laughs> uh, and there it is so i I feel kind of um Lucky that I have that kind of memory that I can sometimes pull pull those things out. I would say that Yiddish song was always at the deepest place in me. Uh, my mother, who could not who could not sing, and I can tell you a funny story about that, <laughs> um, used to sing "Dona Dona" as a lullaby because it was the one song that she could sing, and that's what she put us to sleep with, so that's that's as early as your memory goes back usually just <laughs> your your uh, your blah buys. and my father had uh, a wonderful voice and was known as a singer wow. in fact he recorded a a seventy eight of uh children's songs for the shoulder system um which. Uh, it's in the YIVO archive now. You can go oh, to the cool. sound archive and hear Shalom Aleutsky singing uh, children's songs. For, um,
0: so, what was it like being in this system? I mean, I can't imagine growing up even as uh, uh, having a Jewish life that was so secular, because that just wasn't available in the in the context in which I grew up.
3: So, it it felt extremely. Um, Foundational and secure in my in my Jewish identity, and at the very same time, completely like like a tiny splinter of a splinter of a minority. Mm. So when my friends in in school uh, were were going for bar mitzvahs, I chadish kavus mitvusma asked this. You know, it's like I I was rarely in a synagogue. Uh, a few times i 'd gone with my mother 's uh, father, but um, I, it, it was a strange kind of split consciousness because I felt completely uh, Jewish, and yet the the religion was uh, was quite um, uh, foreign to me as, as far as the you know contemporary going to synagogue and, uh, and learning Hebrew yeah that was totally off my map
0: and you were aware of that even at like 12 13 years old yeah
3: because my my friends from from public school uh, and then later i went to a private school and they were um, they were in in the synagogue world if they were jewish and most of them were it was a jewish neighborhood in the bronx actually that i grew up in and Mm -hmm. then later moved to back to brooklyn
0: yeah do you remember or did you have any feelings of sort of isolation because of that or just that this was like why am I so weird or anything like that or was
3: it... yeah absolutely that was that was the entire experience it was but it wasn't as an individual that I felt weird I felt part of a very secure world wow very secure world of my family and uh, a network of of friends, and a long tradition. I mean, the uh, the Yiddish poet, Hei um, ha, had uh, grandchildren that I knew at, at camp. And he had written, in fact, one of the poems, just especially for Camp Byberic, that I knew by heart because I'd heard it, you know, since I was little. And that was like the great hey Levik. Uh So I felt very securely part of a uninterrupted Jewish world and worldview and very rich cultural you know my 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 teachers were Hanim Lutik was was the music counselor I mean it was like the whole um, uh, aristocracy of, of the Yiddish cultural world were was my family and friends and colleagues you know since since and at the very same time, I knew this was a tiny stripe in the mm. big flag of the world.
0: That's really interesting. I think one of the main differences about my experience in terms of that isolation or feeling weird was that I didn't feel like I was a part of anything that was different than the other people around me. So any kind of pushback I was getting from other Jewish kids just made me feel like I was didn't belong at all because we just had basically the same experience. Although maybe it was like, I know for a while for me, I was like, kids from the suburbs, they suck. Kids from the city, I'm a city guy. And, um, but, yeah. but to have that feel like you're part of something bigger, that's really interesting. And I think once I realized that this stuff was out here, that that was the piece that was missing, but you always had that growing up.
3: I always had it. And I think in the Klesma revival, which is our theme this, this summer, Yeah. Um, I felt I felt that two-track thing because the vocal music, for example, on Capella's first record, which yeah. I which I participated in, uh, I sing uh raboy Sai, Rabbi Sai. It's mm-hmm. yeah. exactly as my father sang it. A complete so the whole th- the whole phenomenon, which was Henry Sapoznik listening to scratchy seventy-eights. And uh, teaching the rest of us, you know, this tune, this klezma tune, was one track, and me singing stuff that I'd sung my entire life was another track. And actually, in a way, what's exciting about right now and this this new CD that's coming out is I'm beginning to finally weave the two together in an interesting way. Yeah because the the Yiddish song tradition doesn't really have the kind of accompanied singing of the kind of songs that I write.
0: I hear what you're saying. I think I you understand what, what you're saying? saying, yeah.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's like, um, uh, sure, a very, very high level of artistry that can combine a sort of um, a classically trained tradition with a folk, um, performance as well i mean combine those two and that that there is a tradition of that yeah looking from across the lake Shura and i probably look like we're the you know in the very same uh place well sure um but i feel it as a very different place and what's exciting to me is that the all of the new musicians, like Winograd, Michael Winograd, who arranged the the album, mm-hmm. grew up completely outside of the tradition and learned it at Kleskamp Camp and other other uh, similar places. Yeah, from from the from the old masters, but he didn't grow up with it in his year. and yet he's been able to become, I think, a masterful. Uh, proponent of the style. And so to be able to work with people who are at that level of you know, musicianship in general and mastery of a, of a Yiddish inflected or a Yiddish idiomatic musical style, writing new songs is, is um, uh, a great privilege. And uh, I'm glad I've, uh, you know, we say in Yiddish, has me leapt if you lived long enough, you live to see it happen. Yeah, And so I feel like I've lived to see it happen this, this summer. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it's uh, an interesting thing I've noticed about our, my generation, and I'm a little later coming into it than people like Michael Winograd and some other folks, but we didn't learn this music with divisions between song and, and, and the music the instrumental music had been pre-developed by that point. So I think maybe it had sort of caught up in the way as opposed to like when you started getting into the instrumental klezmer music, it was like, wow, what's going on here? But I already know this vocal tradition is very well established and we just sort of got it all at once. I actually didn't even know they were separate for a long time, maybe until really recently. And it's one of the things things I'm trying to tease out is what were the continuities and what were the things about the current like history or era that we've been in, and I say maybe for the last 30, forty years that are brand new, and I think this is one of the things that is actually brand new yes. and uh, but so to go back to what it was like to ha- be learning those instrumental music, I mean, you were interested in learning the instrumental stuff
3: Oh, absolutely. The instrumental stuff was familiar to some extent. It's not that I hadn't heard it before. I'd heard it at weddings. I'd heard it uh, at the, uh, on the bandstand, in fact, at Boiberik, at uh, Camp Boiberik. I mean, I'd heard the music. Often it was in a theatrical context. So it's like wedding music that was in a staged wedding, okay? Uh. Or an art song form, uh, like an Ipsik uh text, that was used as a Bachin song that was recorded by Louis Danto, who's a wonderful vocalist, uh, Canadian. Yeah, uh, he's yeah, great. Yeah. Um, that I I learned in order to be able to teach it to someone for a production at Boiberg, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the camp. So, I, I would say it came mostly through the theatrical, which is... You know, it's a sort of a second hand but still a very vital form because the, the Yiddish theater was extremely and still is extremely important in transmitting uh, the music. And it's also important for gigging. You know, I mean, it's like it, it's it's part of the cultural life which which helps us sustain what we're doing. I found some of the earlier recordings. I hadn't heard, let's say, Grand wine for example. mm mm-hmm and those were revelatory that that's the energy
0: in there or whatever
3: the the musical structures you know the, mm. the actual language the actual musical language um you know i uh i'm very interested uh, in this coming year or so to try to do some uh deep analytical work about yiddish folk song uh, and Yiddish song and its features and what makes it—I uh, uh, think Cookie referred to it as being crooked. Mm-hmm. Remember, she talked about that how the Polish musicians thought the Jewish tunes were crooked, and there is something uh, not uh, foursquare, especially in the vocal tradition, uh, which I which I think is a very precious.
4: Think about it. was so von
3: I think that I have been energized by coming into contact with people from Europe who are interested in in, uh, our tradition, the the Yiddish music tradition, partly because Yiddish has a different value. When I first went to Yiddish summer Weimar, I I suddenly found that uh, speaking in Yiddish, was the common language for me with a number of people there, the best way to communicate. That's something which happened to me recently, which, which energized my sense of the value of, of Yiddish and uh, encouraged me because I, I write Yiddish songs. I don't write English songs. I've written English songs. But that was a long time ago.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was going to actually ask about if you, you know, you probably grew up in the 60s, right? And how much of everything that was going on then made it into this uh, secular leftist Jewish world?
3: You know, it was. Uh, I would say musically, uh, I'm, I'm certain there are influences. I mean, sure. There, there, there have to be. But the. Um, I remember, <laughs> I remember once writing a Bob Dylan parody uh, at Camp Lyberick because it sounded kind of funny to me. Yeah, whereas the Yiddish songs sounded are completely natural. Uh huh. <laughs> so yeah. I guess that's that's just a fact about my my upbringing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So,
0: so one thing that Mark Slobin, who we talked to uh, yesterday, mentioned was that when YIVO was on, was in the museums, with next to all the big museums up in New York, and they had a concert, and you guys played. And my question was, how old were you as a band at that point?
3: Well, I was only in the band for about two years.
0: Oh, did you play that show?
3: I did, yeah. See, we, were, we were at the corner of Fifth Avenue and uh, 86th Street. And, I mean,
0: uh, that, so did the, did you were you, found, you started with the band. So within yeah. the first two years of the band you're playing a concert in like an incredibly high-profile place in New York. Right. It's just a really interesting moment to kind of think about.
3: Well, you know, YIVO at that time was in uh, what was formerly a uh, Vanderbilt mansion and has now actually been turned into a an Austrian cultural center. Hmm. So it's kind of a strange, uh, but it was a very high-profile place. And yet it, it Felt in a way that we were we were out of place there. Mm-hmm. I mean, it felt very comfortable and it felt fitting that we had a, ma- a kind of a mansion setting. But it was a library, and a, you know, it, it wasn't really. Um, it, it felt like it was borrowed space.
0: Uh, yeah. yeah, I remember coming across that album Future and Past uh, at a used record store, and just thinking, oh, it says Klezmer, I'm going to get that. And I didn't realize that I had met most of you. I mean, this was a long time ago before I was sort of performing or anything like that. And I hadn't realized, like, oh, my God, that's that person and that's that person? Wow. <laughs> and I'm probably older than all of you were at this point, although I don't know. But it's, yeah. it's just remarkable how much... So what was the process of making, rehearsing those tunes? I mean, did you guys get together every week or a couple times a week? Or?
3: Yeah, we got together pretty regularly, you know, um, what I remember is we were up in, our, in a loft on Houston Street, and after the rehearsal, we'd come down, and Ethel Rain was in the same building, and we, you know, stop and visit with Ethel and, and Marty, and um, it was a great time. It was a great time. There was a, a real sense of discovery, and uh, Meshke was uh, was. Terrific musician. We all, you know, there was there was a lot of a lot of energy uh, and excitement about making making music that was very energetic and and didn't feel saccharine or, or sentimentalized, but felt quite strong as a presence. I remember we once played a some kind of a park on the border of uh, Texas and Mexico. Huh. And um, we got a big crowd, and they were—they thought we were a mariachi band. And it was, <laughs> 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 we started singing in Yiddish, and they were like,
0: "Hmm,
3: <laughs> dialect we don't know."
0: <laughs> so you guys toured some while you were, even yeah, when even we, at the beginning. Yeah,
3: we toured some at the beginning. I—I I think I—I I left the uh, the group before there there was more touring, but right? Yeah.
0: Was that were you aiming to be a professional musician in any way?
3: I don't think I ever had the sense that this would be uh, a, a profession that could sustain me on its own. Sure. And in fact, I, I had met Henry uh, because we were across the, the, the hall up at the YIVO attic. Uh-huh. Which was the former maids' quarters, where the uh, the record collection and the photo collection, and I was working on one, and he was working on the other, and and uh, I was working on the film at that point, image before my eyes, and he was just beginning to dig into the '78 collection, so he in fact came up with with a whole menu of of um, greatest hits that he'd come across so far. Mm-hmm. Including and you know right. things which became very current again, um, and and that's that's what that's how *Capella* started. I mean, you know, as you know, Henry was a, a bluegrass musician, and when he when he found this stuff, it was like, wow, this is this is our stuff.
0: What were some of the first Yiddish songs that you wrote? So when
3: I first started writing Yiddish songs, it was um, for productions at Camp Ibrick. For
0: um, so the teenager.
3: Yeah, I was uh, I was I guess eighteen, nineteen. Uh, I'd, I'd I'd written I guess a little bit before that. I actually wrote when I was thirteen. Oh well, okay. I had a, a secular bar mitzvah, and my instead of a preparing a drasha. I was assigned to write a piece of music, which I did, and it was based somehow on on uh, Jewish historical theme. I forget. I think it was Warsaw Ghetto or something like that. But it was just I literally sat down at the piano in a in a hall in a in a restaurant in New York and played this for the assembled guests. That was my.
2: And, That's lovely.
3: And actually if if I think back on it honestly, that's what I've continued to do. It it was actually my my rite of initiation. Huh. You know? Ooh. Um so it um it, it served its purpose exactly. And I started the the first songs that I wrote were um settings of uh poetry. Um I there was a there were two occasions uh, at uh, Camp Bybrick, where the Music Council, which I became, had to write a whole bunch of songs. One was what we called the Felka Yantov which was a, a festival of nations, a kind of a, a peace festival. And uh, Khanem Emlatik had been, uh, for example, right. as as had Lazar Weiner had been Music oh, Council. Sure. These, are, these were luminaries uh, that I followed. And you had to write about a dozen songs that, for example, if, if uh, the French, these were different groups of, of nations, but in the sense of an ethnic group, too, yeah. coming together to celebrate the, uh, the idea of, of peace, uh, the um, prophetic vision of Isaiah, etc. So, if it was the French, uh, you would take either a folk song or some other song from that, from that culture and write Yiddish words to it. Huh. Um, so, dans le jardin de mon père, les arbres sont fleuris. Okay. So, we, uh, so, I at that point wasn't writing the words. Fischel Coco, who was my uh, mentor, and I learned a great deal of songs from him. I uh, wrote, in mein Taten it did and shine. And, you know, so we translate the first line, and then the second line brings in the idea that all the nations of the world are going to come together, and yeah. So that, that kind of was the formula. Mm. But it was, it was great training for, uh, for writing, writing songs. And then there were, um, there was a mid-season performance that was based on some theme of, of uh, Jewish history, so there was one time where we were actually presenting the life story of the Balshemtov, and uh, Fischl found a few lines from a poem, a larger poem about the Balshemtov, when he was a, uh, a teacher's assistant, and and so I wrote. He knew I could write it, but this was completely idiomatic in the workings of the camp. He said, make a song for the kids out of this. Mm-hmm. So I wrote... Uh, That's where that comes from. I had no idea that
0: song was had yeah. been around for so long. Yeah, yeah. And it's a great one.
3: Yeah, and then and uh recorded that many years later.
0: Yeah. Uh, and you just re really, you just did a new version of it now right and i
3: no, that's, no, a, no that's that's a different last, one yeah. yeah it's a different one yeah but so that's when I started getting those texts uh as an assignment for uh, basically a theater production, which is why I say the theater has been a very productive and and important um, yeah. uh, site for creating songs so that's why that's how I got my start later. I I like to to say that uh, Bayle, Schechter Gottesman was my model because she also started writing songs for kids as yeah. a teacher in the system, and then later started writing those very deep, philosophical, reflective, personal songs like Hobbsley, right, which are really memorializing moods and moments of her life, and you know. American popular music, for the most part, is a young person's game, uh, at right. least especially when I was coming up, yeah, and so the fact that oh well here's here's a, actually a mature person writing not I want to hold your hand," which was right. a great song, but <laughs> you know, yeah. look, um, the autumn is full of gold, you know? right. let's right. not be scared of of growing old so it's it was a great um i i uh, that's another thing I like about the the Yiddish song tradition is that it's a it's a mature <laughs> mm-hmm. look at life um, I mean among many other things there's lots of there's lots of sides to it but that's that's one that I feel very deeply connected to and uh, that very reflective um, but because it's in Yiddish and it's connected with a very rich tradition it's also not personal it's also a national kind of uh, expression.
0: That's a really great point. Uh, so we just have a couple more minutes. Maybe you want to talk about your album a little bit.
3: Yes. I, I have a new album which uh, literally hot off the press and yeah. uh, brought the first copies here which I hope everyone will, will become aware of in the tent outside. Uh, it's called Passagiers, mm-hmm. Passengers which comes from uh, the last song on the album which I wrote uh, riding the subway train over the East River one morning. And the sound of the of the bell that warns you, the chime that warns you that the doors are going to close in like a second, was that somehow was in my mind. So I wrote, um, good morning good morgo, and took it off from there. It's a, it's a seize the day kind of song. Uh, the The great part of it for me is that M- Michael Winograd, who mm-hmm. arranged the songs, assembled what I consider to be a dream team of yeah klezmer musicians or musicians who were able to get dig their hands into the style, including Deborah Strauss, with whom I'd recorded my first album mm-hmm. uh and and really top notch players at every stand so
0: yeah, it's great. We need more original, and it's all original music. It's
3: all original songs, all original Yiddish songs about social, personal themes. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's important. We need a lot more original music out there. I guess the yeah. thing I'll just want to end with is just where, what are some things that you'd like to see in the scene? Any kind of developments or things that you like that you see in the scene?
3: What I, what I would like to see more of is uh, vocal with instrumental in, in a kind of a fresh way. That's not, I mean, there's nothing wrong with what we have, but uh, I'd like to see more development there that's not necessarily in the theatrical tradition, which is a very rich tradition. Personally, I'd like to see uh, many more people writing New Yiddish songs. Mm-hmm. That's what I most like to see. That's why I'm so uh, thrilled that uh, that Shura is continuing to add to the to the repertoire. Because um, the sense that singing a Yiddish song is somehow a, an act of historical memory it has to it has to only be part of what we do when we sing Yiddish it's great i mean i'm not saying let's not sing the old songs just the opposite I mean we must sing them but uh, unless we continue to I, I think about it as revival versus replenish mm. you know unless we keep replenishing the well then the, you know what are we reviving we're reviving older and older then we become like Biblical enactments or something, I mean, <laughs> eventually. It has to continue to be living uh, and, and then we get a very rich mixture of, of things. You, you know, the songs that were written just after the Second World War have contained in them the sense of the immense loss whether it's it's tragedy or just the fact of the loss itself but we're now living in a in a later era and and that has lost its immediacy and we cannot continue to only sing those songs we have to sing the songs that that you know we have new anxieties and fears <laughs> it's true and and unless unless we unless we can experience them in our songs, then we're left with what? Our faces are always facing the wrong way. We won't, you know, whatever hits us is gonna hit us blind.
0: So what would you say to a young person who maybe does not have, I mean, you're very fortunate to have the depth of connection to the Yiddish language that you do, which I think is one of the things that makes your songwriting to me so natural is the word we usually use for it but sort of easy but who what do you what kind of responsibility or what kind of thing do you relationship do you need to the language to really get started or to get into it
3: i i think it's important to remember that i personally was not in a position to write original yiddish songs when i was 20. Mm -hmm. okay um, most of the people who come to, to this music through CLEZ Canada and similar institutions around the world uh, will, will not know Yiddish as, as their first language and they will not most of the time know Yiddish even as a, as a fairly good second language. Uh, Dan Kahn made a very good point in our songwriting workshop uh, this morning in saying, learn Yiddish. Mm-hmm. you know learn yiddish because uh it's going to take a while <laughs> but be patient with it and uh, e- you know even after you've you've studied it for for a couple of years uh part-time or online or what, whatever way you do and by the way learning yiddish songs is a great way to learn yiddish
0: and that's basically all the yiddish i know
3: well that's a good start that's yeah, that's totally. not to apologize for but the, the thing is that you begin to have, feel a connection to those phrases and idioms, and they start to mean something only when you use them. Like, if you have a conversation and someone throws in a Yiddish expression, then it begins to mean something in that context. Then it makes it different for you to write a Yiddish song than to write a French song. There's so nothing wrong. You could write a French song or an English song. But if you don't have the, the living connection with the phrase or the or the point of view, the way of looking at the world, the way of experiencing it, the connotations of a a, a, a word, um, then uh, you know, then why do it? So I I my my feeling is, fatifsa, uh, you know, get get into it, uh, listen to Shura's songs and my songs and other, and Dan Khan's songs the new songs as well as all the classics and just immerse yourself in that and then you find you find the direction and write some you know write new tunes well they'll, they'll be without words and you'll find a partner we we talk about collaboration and then, and then you know 10 years down the line you'll come up with your own hook because you've you've heard enough of this stuff
0: yeah, let's yeah. do it. That'd be great. All right. <laughs> so yeah. I think that's probably a great place to wrap up for today. <laughs> I just want to thank Josh Waletzky so much for being here and thank you all for being here. And Yashora.
4: Good morning. Good morning. nicht not have what are Good morning, good year. You know, we say that in Yiddish, and it's a good
0: morning, good year. It's a way of greeting each other. And that's the song that Josh was just talking about a little earlier in the episode. Uh, Wow. You know, going over this interview again a couple of months later to edit this, I just realized how amazing the stories of these two singers are. And how lucky we are to have people like this playing this music that was played by a small population of a small population. Uh, It's really an amazing thing. Both Josh and Shura are just so deep in their craft and their music. I think they're very different singers, but each of them really draws out the best aspects of what Yiddish As a musical language or as a language for song has to offer. I love both of their music and I hope that you did too. I know Shura has CDs out. I'm not actually sure if she has any albums that solely feature the newer music that she talked about, but Josh's album, Passagieren, is out uh, and you should go search it out and pick up a copy. It actually is a book. With all the lyrics in uh, both Yiddish and English. And with the CD included. And it's really beautiful. I've seen it. And I hope that you'll go get a copy. I also hope that you'll go check out my CD, Radiant Others, and pick up a copy of that. Uh, You can do that either through my website or on Bandcamp. And uh, what else? Oh, yeah. On... October 22nd at 7 p.m. in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania at the Ethical Society in Rittenhouse Square. I'm going to be doing a CD launch concert for my CD. You can come. The tickets are 10 to 20 bucks, sliding scale. It's going to be me. It's going to be Nick Millivoy playing the music from the album. We're going to be joined by some special guests like David Licht of the Klezmatics on drums. And it's actually just going to turn into a big Klezmer dance party by the end with dancing led by Steve Weintraub. So uh, find me on Facebook. That's the best way to get information about that concert. But that's April. Uh, sorry, October 22nd, 7 p.m., Ethical Society in Philadelphia. And if you're in New York, uh, Nick and I will be up to play the New York Klezmer Series on November 9th. That's Thursday, November 9th. And you can find information about that at nyklezmer.com or on Facebook. So that's it. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode from Klez Canada. So in the meantime... I hope that you've all had great Jewish holidays and good Shabbos.
4: Bim Bam. Bim Bam. Der Kadir sein den Leibe dicken Bim Bam, Bim Bam, bringt das Bim Bam, Bim Bam, bringt das Gretel Bim Lachschap, Bim Bim